to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Every week on every Friedman Report, I try to bring you the most important news stories of the past week with some of the backstory that makes them important and then my analysis that hopefully makes them interesting and relevant. And it bothers me if sometimes I just have to drop the story in the middle when the event is still going on, for example. But because more news different news becomes more timely or somehow more critical in the news cycle, which is, of course, continually changing. So today I would like to catch up on some stories that I have brought to you over the past weeks, but haven't yet been resolved. (laughs) They may not be resolved today either, but at least I will try to bring you up to date. Let's take Hong Kong, for example. A few weeks ago, I told you about the the massive demonstrations that were taking place in Hong Kong against the administrative government that was appointed by the mainland Chinese government. Now, this was the government that should have been elected by the people of Hong Kong. And the fact that those elections were taken away from them by China was in contravention of the agreement that China made with the United Kingdom in 1999. That was when the British ceded Hong Kong back to the Chinese government. The demonstrations that started in May were massive. They brought an estimated million people or more into the streets of Hong Kong. And I wondered at the time how long the Chinese government would put up with this. This is, after all, the communist Chinese government, and in 1989 they put down another demonstration in mainland China with a harshness and violence that shocked the free world. It became known as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Now, today the location is different. The Chinese government is different. But will the demonstrations now going on in Hong Kong, will the Chinese government continue to tolerate such anti-government demonstrations? Or will they ultimately put them down as brutally as they did in 1989? Well, a lot is different now. Among other things, China has embraced a part of the capitalist agenda in the massive building of their own economy. China has, in part at least, a capitalist economy. It's not doing very well because they're only doing it in half measure, but they have embraced at least part of the economics of the free market economy. So the people of Hong Kong are different from the people of mainland China because they learned a lot about capitalist methods when they were governed by the British. Then, 
When Britain turned Hong Kong over to the Chinese in 1999, it was with the understanding that Hong Kong would continue to function in a semi-autonomous way for another 50 years. Ah, but since 1999, the Chinese have been slowly, slowly whittling away at that autonomy. And now the people of Hong Kong are saying, we've had enough of your broken promises. First, it was a bill in the Hong Kong government that made it easier for China to extradite people from Hong Kong for what China considered to be criminal activity. As a result of the pressure that the initial peaceful protests put on the Hong Kong government, the extradition bill was suspended. And Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, declared that it was dead. But by that time, the people of Hong Kong were worried that it could be revived. And so the demonstrations spread from Hong Kong Island to other parts of the former British protectorate, also known as Hong Kong. As the weeks passed, the initial peaceful demonstrations became rowdier. Then last Saturday in Xiongshu, on the Chinese border, the demonstrators came to the streets wearing face masks and helmets and carrying umbrellas in case police used pepper spray. And in fact, the police did use pepper spray when the people started throwing these things that they brought with them at the police. So the police used pepper spray and batons to clear the protesters after they refused to leave. They had received permission to demonstrate and they didn't want to leave. Then the next day, in the city of Shatin, which is to the south, protesters showed up and pressed their demand for the release of people who had been detained during earlier demonstrations in June and for an investigation into the use of force by police. And they shouted, nasty police, shame on you. So here's the question. How will China react to these new demonstrations against their own appointed government? Will they use force against the demonstrators? Will it escalate and get more violent? And then how will the people of Hong Kong respond to a major show of force? And what will happen to the freedoms that Hong Kong citizens have enjoyed until now? In the face of other pressures, like the difficult trade talks with the United States and the Chinese government's concern about its own economic weakness, it's really difficult to predict what will happen next. But you can be sure of one thing. China will not take the spreading demonstrations in Hong Kong lightly. And while they'll probably weigh the pros and cons of a strong suppression of these demonstrations, whether it will be a replay of the tanks and bullets in Tiananmen Square, that remains to be seen. And like many of the other stories that we cover on this show, this one is a story that will continue to command our attention. And I'll be keeping you up to date as things develop. Now, let's move to a totally different subject. 
As you well know, there is a war of words going on in Congress, among the Democrats, and between particular members of Congress and the President. And it's not getting any better. It all started, of course, in November 2016 when Donald Trump won the election and Hillary Clinton lost. Then in 2018, new Democrats from strong Democrat districts came into Congress. Among them, four in particular, who were characterized by a combined arrogance and unwillingness to sit quietly. And all four of them had big agendas that were in direct opposition to the traditional party line. They had a more socialist agenda, a green agenda, a shockingly anti-Semitic agenda, which of course includes support for anti-Israel policy. And then they had a strong anti-Trump agenda. Now that last item is centered around the push for impeachment, even though the legal grounds for impeachment don't seem to exist. For example, Representative Al Green, who is a Democrat from Texas, just said that he plans to force an impeachment during the month of July. He said that he's doing this because of President Trump's inflammatory tweets aimed at the group of four freshman congressmen, who are known as the Squad, whom he told to go back to the countries they came from and see the corruption there and then come back and tell us how to fix the corruption here. It was pretty clear, but the Democrats, of course, have only quoted the first part. Go back where you came from. That's silly because of the four, only Ilhan Omar was not born in the United States. If the others were to go back to where they came from, it would be Michigan and New York and Massachusetts. So that's a non-starter, and anybody who wants to misinterpret what Trump said uh, will have at it, but uh, they'll be wrong. And by the way, he said this week that he feels the need to take action because of the president's nasty rhetoric. As I said, the legal grounds for impeachment don't seem to exist, but that is not likely to stop him. So here's the thing. The Democrat rage and disbelief has continued, as we know, for the last, what, year and a half. And it shows no sign of letting up. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. So let's just take a quick look at two of these women who are causing so much consternation in the media almost every day and causing some real panic among the old guard in the Democrat Party. How much damage can they really do? Well, interestingly enough, they could do a great deal of damage. But according to a new poll that just came out, these women may be hurting their own party far more than the Republicans and may be spending less time in Congress than they thought they would. Well, it turns out that this new poll was an internal Democrat poll which makes it clearly more significant than a poll that was taken, for example, by Pew. 
It indicated that these two women in particular, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was a Democrat from the 14th District in New York, and Ilhan Omar, who is a Democrat from Minnesota, are extremely unpopular. And more than that, that their antics and their penchant for seeking publicity at any cost may actually cost the Democrat Party both the presidency and the House in 2020. According to the Daily Wire, which reported the survey, Ocasio-Cortez was recognized by 74% of voters in the poll, but only 22% had a favorable opinion of her. And Ilhan Omar from Minnesota was only recognized by 53% of the voters. And oh my gosh, only 9% had a favorable view. And here's another thing, socialism. Socialism, which is what these two women have been promoting nearly nonstop. How was that viewed by this sample population? Well, it was viewed favorably by only 18% of the voters but unfavorably by 69%. They were also asked how they felt about capitalism. Capitalism was looked at as favorable by 56% of the people who participated in the poll, and only 32% thought it was unfavorable. So, as far as this poll is concerned and the population that it represents on a larger scale, Capitalism wins by a landslide. What does this mean for the Democrat Party as a whole? Well, these two women, here it is, these two women may actually bring down the entire Democrat Party in 2020 with their outrageous behavior. How about that? Okay, and now just so we don't let ourselves get too serious, let me move to a different kind of story. Fox News and others are reporting that Area 51 has become a target for over nearly half a million extraterrestrial questers and the fans of movies like E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So if you're one of these, listen up. A social media mob of Facebook users are planning to descend on Area 15 in the Mojave Desert, that's not far from Groom Lake, Nevada, which is about 100 miles north of Las Vegas. Now, now this group is planning to mob Area 51 in September, this coming September, to see what the military has been keeping secret for so long. So, in case you haven't been paying attention, or in case you're not one of those groupies who really wants to know what's going on in Area 51, this is a top-secret military base and open training range for the U.S. Air Force. It's where our famous U-2 spy planes and other stealth aircraft were tested, and it is so secret that the secrecy itself 
fed the theories about aliens by those believers who are absolutely certain that UFOs and extraterrestrial aliens either landed or were captured and kept on this base at Area 51. The base is run by the U.S. Air Force, and its operations are highly classified. Until August 2013, Area 51 didn't officially exist at all. So on September 20th, 2019, at 3 a.m., 400,000 UFO enthusiasts are planning to descend on Area 51 to, quote, see them aliens, unquote. I guess they figure, though, that the Air Force can't stop them all. Well, since they've given the Air Force plenty of time to prepare, and as Robert Burns once wrote to a little mouse, quote, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, unquote. Chances are that their effort to storm Area 51 will make a good story for some enterprising reporter, but it will probably be disappointing to a lot of people if they actually make the trip. Oh well. Okay, now I'm going to take a short break, but don't go away because my guest, when I come back, will be Greg the Storyteller. And he has a few interesting stories for you this time about when he was a soldier in the Israeli army. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, when I started this program and I started broadcasting the analysis of news, uh, of the news of the week and news of the day, I started off by saying that life is, a, is an endless series of stories. And these stories are what make the fabric of our lives interesting, but that also uh, create a history from which we can learn. And uh, some of you may remember that one of my guests was Greg the Storyteller. And he told some stories that were illustrative of the kind of, uh, the kind of history, the stories in history, that can make the real difference if we listen to them. If we retell these stories, if we reread them and we learn from them, then we can keep from making the same mistakes that people made before us, but we can also learn how to do things differently so that we don't, we don't do the same things over and over and over again and suffer the same consequences. So I have with me today a guest who, with whom some of you will be familiar, and that is Greg, Greg the Storyteller. But we're going to do something a little different. Instead of just asking Greg to tell a story and then make some connections between the history that he's talking about and the stories of today, uh, I'm going to ask him a little bit about who he is and what his experiences have been, his life experiences, and what he makes of all this. So uh, let me introduce you again to Greg the Storyteller. Hi, Greg. Hi. 
I uh, welcome you to the Friedman Report. Thank you very much. Uh, nice studio you've got here. Yeah. Well, we're working on it. Um, I would really like to know more about who you are. And uh, let's start with... Maybe I should start with a minor disclaimer and say that uh, Greg is not actually what's written on my driver's license. Okay. But it is very convenient for me to use this as a name. I mean, your listeners have probably guessed by now that uh, my driver's license does not say the storyteller. Greg the storyteller, that's correct. No, it, is not, it does not say. Well, the could be your middle name, but it isn't. Then I'm sounding a little bit like Mr. T. First name <laughs> Mr., middle name period, last name T. No, that's not the way I do business. <laughs> okay, so you were born in the United States. I was. And uh, you grew up here. I did. Up to a point. And then you moved to Israel. I did. And you were there for how long? 14 years. 14 years. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in Israel? Sure. Well, something that people often ask me about pertains to citizenship. Maybe that's a good place to start because having been born in the United States to an American family, I certainly am an American citizen. I emigrated to Israel as a child. I became an Israeli citizen before the age of 18, actually, which makes me what some people call a dual citizen. Now, that means that I'm allowed to carry two passports, which I do. And it means, for example, that when I enter the United States from abroad, I'm required by law to use my American passport, which I do. When I am entering Israel, visiting Israel, visiting friends there, I do use my Israeli passport as I'm required to do by Israeli law. The Israeli government uh, fully expected me to put in my time with the Israeli military, which perhaps we'll talk about in a little bit. I would like to raise a topic in order to dispel it, which is the issue of dual citizenship and the specter of dual loyalties. I am an American. I live in the United States, and I am very proud to be an American. And the United States has been very good to me. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm very pleased with that. When I visit Israel, which I sometimes do, uh, I am going back to a place that I lived in as a child, as an adult, and a place that welcomes me. And when people ask, is this not a problem, being a person who is legally entitled to carry two passports, well, I say that the United States government does not have any problem with it whatsoever, and the Israeli government does not have any problem with it whatsoever, and uh, so long as they're fine with it, so am I. There is a story that I sometimes tell, I guess this gets to the whole storytelling aspect we were discussing earlier, about a young man named Moshe Ahrens, who was an immigrant to the United States. He was originally from Lithuania, I believe, but he became a U.S. citizen. In fact, he became a professor of aeronautical engineering at MIT, and he lived in the United States for quite a long time. Then, as an adult, he emigrated to Israel became an Israeli citizen, but retained his American citizenship. He entered Israeli politics and retained his American citizenship. He eventually, after a number of years in the political apprenticeship that you go through in Israel, he became a member of Israel's parliament, the Knesset, and he retained his American citizenship. Nobody ever asked to have it back, which I imagine struck him as kind of interesting, perhaps a little strange, but there it was. He would eventually become a minister without portfolio in the Israeli government, and he retained his American citizenship. He would eventually start moving up the ranks as a minister in the Israeli government, and he was still on the books as an American citizen. Eventually, he became the Israeli minister of defense, 
At which point, he made a point of going to the American embassy and saying, uh, folks, this is getting ridiculous. I mean, you've been very nice, you've been very polite, you've been extremely patient with me, but I think it's time. And he handed in his American passport, and uh, from that point on was no longer an American citizen. But I use this to illustrate just how forgiving both the American government and the Israeli government can be of this issue, given that the United States and Israel have been allies since the very beginning for Israel. And uh, it is certainly my hope that it will always remain so. That's a, that's a good hope to have because uh, Israel and, uh, and the United States are very firm partners in just about every area of international diplomacy and, uh, and, and um, commerce and all the th things that two countries can be to each other to support each other's existence and future successes. I would say a lot more than that, actually, because the United States does give a lot to Israel, financially and in many other ways, but Israel gives back to the United States a great deal, and this is something that we often don't recognize. Uh, in particular, I believe a lot of people here in the United States do not recognize this, in terms of the tremendous amount of R&D that is done by American companies. In Israel, for example, a lot of inventions that are very important to our everyday lives here. Like what, for example? Well, for example, just about every Intel microprocessor from the 386 onward was developed and produced in Israel. Meaning to say that if you have used a desktop computer for the past 10 to 15 years, it's got some Israeli tech in it. An awful lot of the modern technology used by the internet makes use of Israeli technology. An awful lot of cell phone technology was developed in Israel. Instant messaging was developed in Indeed Israel. Indeed it was. Indeed it was, with a, with a small startup in Israel that would eventually be acquired by America Online, and the technology has continued. A technology that perhaps some people don't look at very favorably here in the United States, but I, I think of fondly in terms of where it comes from. Robo-dialing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people really don't like the idea of a computerized system that can make hundreds of thousands of phone calls. But to the best of my knowledge, I'm not 100% certain of this, but I believe this technology was developed in Israel for the purpose of warning the targets of an upcoming Israeli military strike. That is to say, when the Israel Air Force was about to make a strike against terrorist headquarters, Something in, that is almost unbelievable to an Gaza. American in Gaza yeah. and elsewhere. That's correct. Yeah, okay. Something that would it's almost unbelievable to he, us here in the United States. They would make hundreds of thousands of phone calls to cell phones in Arabic, warning people in that specific neighborhood that they needed to get out right now. And they did this knowing full well that the terrorist leaders would likely escape. But it was more important to the Israeli military high brass that the, uh, the non-combatants would get out of harm's way first. And I, I just think that it's amazing that the Israelis developed this technology in order to be able to provide these warnings. Uh, I wonder sometimes how, how many tens of thousands of dollars, how many hundreds of hours of manpower went into developing this technology in order to warn non-combatants to get out of the target zone. And how many other countries would use it? Well, for that purpose? Yeah. One wonders. Yeah. On the other hand, we can see that that technology was repurposed, as such things usually are, <laughs> and now we can look forward to them during the election season.
Yes. So, They've yes, already if, started, by the way. For the 2020 election? Yes, yes yeah. I imagine they have. Uh, although I've been spared that so far. Okay. So if you are looking for something that you really would like to blame Israel for, yeah, you can count that. Okay, now you also need to count uh, medical technology. Oh, goodness, yes. And we're talking about things like, you know, the um, endoscopy that's used both in endo in uh, endoscopes? What are they called? The, the endoscopes, yes, but it was but the Israelis who developed a pill. The pill with a camera. Before, and before the pill, yeah, mm -hmm. before the pill, there was a, um, uh, a, a tiny little camera. And I, one of my clients when I lived there was a, the one oh, of the you companies. Oh, you too. <laughs> wow. And one of the companies that, that actually developed this. And it was before the pill, but I'm not quite sure. It was, it was, a, it was a small capsule, but they tested it in a pig's intestine. Mm-hmm. And I saw the pictures of it. It was absolutely unbelievable at that time, which is which was easily. I've got to calculate this out. Give me a moment. It was easily 25 years ago, but this company was already developing it. They were already developing 3D full color mammograms. Mm -hmm. uh, they were developing. They had already developed the MRI, mm -hmm. and and so forth. You know, these life saving technologies now were were not just dreams 25 years ago. They were reality, and they were coming into commerce. So we have, right. we have uh, telecommunications and computer technology, we have medical technology, and then we have military technology. Indeed we do. And uh, that was uh, another, a very Indeed. important contribution to the technology that the world is now using. Every, every country in the world is using this technology to a greater or lesser extent from using cell phones and computers right. to using very high-level medical technology or very high-level military technology. Indeed. We talk about drones a lot these days. That's, that's a big thing in military circles. But if I remember correctly, the Israelis were using unmanned drones uh, back in the early 1980s. And I, they were doing an awful lot of pioneering work. I would hesitate to say that this concept was invented by the Israelis, but they did a lot of the early leg work in making this work for military applications. And a lot of what we do today is based on some of the pioneering work that they did. You know, uh, I had a friend who was uh, on a, a mission to Israel from Texas. Okay. And uh, as part of this mission, they were taken up to a part of Israel in the north. Mm -hmm. And they were just standing around waiting for something to somebody to come or something to happen that was a part of the program. And then they were taken into a small theater and they were shown aerial views of themselves standing around waiting for something to happen. And they even had a picture of their license plate to show that it wasn't other people standing around. And this was a drone. Now, this took place probably in 1990, so you know how far back it goes. This is that. You and said how the much the technology has advanced since then. That's right. Now, something that your listeners might be interested to know, because, correct me if I'm wrong, your listeners are mostly uh, Americans, American citizens, who might be asking themselves from time to time when they listen to your program. Uh, when your listeners listen to your program, I imagine a question that might come up is, Okay, here's Alana talking about Israel, but why is this important to me? If I, for example, an Amer am an American who has never traveled to Israel, maybe I've never traveled out of the United States at all, why is what happens over there in this 
small place I can barely find on a map. Why is that important to me? And I think that some of the, tech, the technological developments you're discussing speak to that very greatly. Now, something that comes to mind that I saw a couple of years ago uh, on a visit to Israel was a water processing plant. Did you know that when it comes to reclamation of used water, did you know that Israel leads the world? That Israel reclaims more used water than any other country in the world by a significant margin? How much do you know? I don't have the exact figures in my head, but I remember something like 70% of used water in Israel can be reclaimed and used again. And uh, the second place is in the 20 or 30% range. It's insane that's, how, that's, how far ahead Israel is above the, the rest of the world, which means that this is technology that a thirsty world desperately needs. And to the extent that they're willing to learn from Israel, Israel has a lot to teach them. How do they, how do, they do this? Do you know? Is it... They have many technologies that they use. Uh, some of it, as you can probably imagine, involves desalination of mm-hmm. seawater, sea correct, because Israel is a country that has relatively little in the way of freshwater resources, but they have the Mediterranean at their disposal. But in terms of used water, they have huge processing plants where they use biological techniques, special bacteria that are intended to eat up some of the pollutants that are in the water and then can then be filtered out, and then you have clean water. Water that winds up being, for all intents and purposes, clean drinking water, although, depending on where it came from, they will not use it for that. So, for example, industrial water that is purified to the level of being drinkable is then used for agriculture, for example. Mm -hmm. Israelis pioneered decades ago the use of drip irrigation technology in order to basically irrigate a huge field with all the water it needs, but not a drop more. You know, this technology was originally uh, developed on the kibbutz Steboker, and that was David Ben-Gurion's That's kibbutz. David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion, uh, for the, our listeners who, are, who don't know, uh, David Ben-Gurion was the first prime minister of Israel. And he was the one who stood before the world and announced the establishment of the state of Israel. He's interesting in several other ways, I would say, to your listeners. Something that speaks very much to me in terms of the nature of what kind of a country we have here and what kind of a country Israel is. The idea of elected leaders that will lead our country and then go home. Please remember that when the United States was founded, this was a foreign concept. This was brand new. This was unheard of. There are even stories of King George III, who was the King of Britain at the time of our separation from England, asking what this revolutionary George Washington, what was he going to do? Well, he's now president of this new country, the United States. And when he is no longer president of the United States, if he serves his term, what if he loses an, an election? What happens then? Then he will go home. And King George said, well, if he does that, then he will be the greatest man in, in the world, because I can't imagine anyone doing that. Of course, we know that George Washington did exactly that. He served two terms as president, said that was enough, and he went home. You know, it's interesting when you see the parallels between American history and Israeli history. And I'm really glad that you came and shared some of this with us. I'll be continuing this conversation with Greg over the next few weeks. And through this conversation, I hope that we will be able to get a new and fresh perspective about 
the relationship between Israel and the United States, and what it's like to be an American living in Israel. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back here for the next few weeks and sharing your experiences with us. I'm going to take another short break, and then I'll be right back with another story. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now, Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMe-er, go to GoFundMe, look up the Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. You know, something is happening in this country, and it's something I think we should talk about. It began with 9-11, and we all began talking about terrorism, and the word terrorism became part of everyday conversation. We talked about terrorism as a threat. And there were all kinds of activities going on about how to identify a threat, how to react to it, how to prepare for it. A lot of work went into preparedness, particularly in, in uh, large corporations around the country and also, also for schools. So we continued to talk about terrorism and we continued to be, uh, you know, somewhat afraid of it, particularly since we didn't know what to do about it. And we felt helpless, really helpless against the threat. Then the federal government came out with some plans and programs and 
sort of cute little catchphrases that we could hang on to, you know, see something, say something, that kind of thing. Not very helpful, but that's where we were back then. And then slowly, slowly, two things began to happen. The first was that we, we stopped thinking about it. It took us way outside of our comfort zone, and we weren't happy there, and we didn't see any way to remedy that. So we just stopped thinking about it. And the other thing that happened was that we became very politically correct. And since many of these attacks on civilians have been perpetrated by Muslim extremists, radical Islamist terrorists who's, who aim to die killing infidels. And so that's their message. That was what we were afraid of talking about. And the more time passed, the more afraid we were to talk about it because anybody who talks about it in that way is called an Islamophobe, a racist. That's crazy because Islam isn't a race, it's a religion. But that notwithstanding, we reached a point in our society where if we were afraid of being called a racist, we did not talk about Islamic extremism, we didn't talk about Islamic terrorism, and we simply went about our daily business and tried to ignore the realities that were really right there in front of us. Then another thing happened. As a result of these two factors. We started shifting the areas in which we wanted to take some action. So we had the mass shooting at Sandy Hook in Connecticut. We had the mass shooting in Orlando uh, at a gay nightclub. We had a mass shooting in San Bernardino at a Christmas party and so forth. And so we started to take a different kind of approach to the, the threats that were facing us. Instead of being afraid of Islamic terrorism, which we can't talk about, we began to be afraid of mass shooters. And there was a terrific, very, very strong call for serious gun control, which I think avoids the obvious because the areas of this country which have the most significant gun control laws, like Chicago, for example, are the places where they have the most serious problem with shootings. And so if you ignore that fact, it's a, it's a very short walk to saying, well, we need to take the guns away from everybody and then we won't have this problem. Of course, that's not true because the people who are operating outside the law, who are working in the poor communities of the inner city, they'll get their guns. They'll get them on the street. They'll get them in the black market. They'll get them one way or another. It's people like you and me who will not get them because we, we abide by the laws. And if the laws say you can't have a gun, we don't even know how to get guns off the street or from the black market. You know, we live in a different world. So what we are afraid of now is mass shootings. So now the conversation becomes, let's get rid of the guns. Let's confiscate the guns. Let's, let's get them off the street. Hey guys, this is America. We don't confiscate guns here. 
Oh, but wait a minute. We can't get them off the street because the ones on the street, those are the illegal guns that are going to stay on the street because these guys are not going to show up for voluntary confiscation. They're not going to let you take their guns and they have their own sources of supply that completely go around the legal routes that the rest of us take. So the question then becomes, what do we do about it? How do we make ourselves feel safe? How do we protect our families? How do we prepare for a potential active shooter event or a terrorist attack? Because they're really the same thing. And what do we need to do to understand what our limitations are and what the possibilities are for successfully keeping ourselves and our families and our communities safe. The FBI has come up with a formula that says run, hide, fight. Those things in that order are what we're supposed to do if we're faced with a situation in which there is an active shooter. The problem with that, it's a one-size-fits-all formula and it may work in some situations, but there are other situations where it won't work. And if you think the first thing to do is run, and you're in a school where there's a shooter, and you run, and you get shot, that was clearly not the thing to do. That was not what you should have tried to do first. But it depends on the facility. It depends on the, the layout of the building you're in or if it's outside, as it was in Las Vegas, you're just sitting ducks. What are you going to do? You can't run, you can't hide, and you can't fight. So I think we need to take a fresh approach to this and understand that when you are dealing with the threat of an active shooter, you need to understand that there is no formula that applies to every situation and to every individual. It's wonderful to be able to say, run, hide, fight. But it's quite another thing to apply it when you are actually in the emergency. It takes more than just a slogan to get through it safely. I think we need to rethink what we do in the, in the situation where an active shooter is on the premises and you want to continue living. What I do when I'm not talking to you and when I'm not writing articles for America Out Loud is I advise schools and companies and municipalities on how to keep their operations, their personnel, their students safe in the event of an active shooter on the premises. And one of the things that I tell them is that it doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't even have to be expensive, but it does have to be smart. And it has to be a, a response that takes into account the circumstances and the building and the environment and the people around you. Now, you can't do that when it's happening. There's something very interesting that happens to the human body when it's under that kind of stress. Your line of vision narrows, you, your peripheral vision almost goes away things start moving in slow motion and your adrenaline goes through the roof. Uh, your heart starts pounding and, and you are, you have 
something close to tunnel vision. And you are not in any position to make decisions about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. So, so it's important to consider all of these possibilities beforehand. And that's why training is so important. So let me tell you a story, a quick story, about Rick Rescorla, a man with enormous foresight and belief in himself that what he knew was right. Rick Rescorla was the head of security for Morgan Stanley, a brokerage firm that had offices in the upper floors of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. He had believed for a long time that the Twin Towers were real targets for attack. So he developed an evacuation plan for the company and he made his employees practice it over and over again. They didn't like that very much because it meant climbing up and down so many stairs. But on 9-11, that practice made all the difference. When the first plane hit the North Tower, the Port Authority issued an announcement through its PA system. It told everybody in the South Tower of the World Trade Center that they should remain calm and stay at their desks. Rescorla was astonished and he could not wait. He grabbed a bullhorn and he ordered the employees to evacuate the building. So before the second plane struck the South Tower, Morgan Stanley employees were on their way down the stairs. Thousands of people, in fact, nearly 2,700 people, are alive today because of Rick Rescorla. And, you know, trying to keep people calm under the, such extreme circumstances, he began singing as he guided people down the stairs through the smoke and the dust. He didn't make it out, but 2,700 other people owe their lives to him. And the point of this story, my friends, is that when you practice these emergency procedures, you remember them when you need them. And that's the point of training. So let's assume for the sake of discussion that the government decides not to confiscate our guns and this particular pressure from gun control advocates goes nowhere. We have now the fear of mass shootings instead of the fear of Islamic terrorism or other forms of terrorism. And by the way, I believe that a mass shooting is also a form of terrorism. It comes suddenly. You don't expect it. The perpetrator or perpetrators have their ideology, whatever it may be. It may be religious. It may be something else. And they come to destroy other people. And there are no innocent victims because everyone who is in the area, whether it's a child or an adult or a teenager or a group of old women, it doesn't matter. They are the target. That's my definition of terrorism. So a school shooter is a terrorist. And a guy who goes into a shopping mall and starts firing a gun, doesn't matter what his ideology is, he's a terrorist. 
because he's taking the lives of people who are innocent, who have nothing to do with whatever his agenda may be, but they're his targets because he wants them to be. So let's talk for a minute about how you deal with it, how you stop being afraid of it, how do you be prepared for it so that should, in the worst case scenario, should something happen, you at least have the basics of knowing what to do. One of the most important things you can do to keep yourself safe is to always, always be aware of what's going on around you. They call this situational awareness. And what that really means is that you are always aware of the environment in which you are present. If you're in traffic, you want to make sure that that car doesn't hit you. That's part of situational awareness. You want to make sure as you walk down the street that you don't bump into the person in front of you. That's a kind of situational awareness. But you also want to make sure that you know what is going on around you. That's true. It's, it's not only about terrorism and it's not only about shooting, but it's about any situation that puts you at risk. You really want to know if somebody's following you, for example, what are the chances? Probably very low. But just in case, you, you want to be aware of who is around you. And you can practice this. You can practice it by when you go out to lunch with a friend. Notice what he or she is wearing. If you are driving down some street, take a look at the car behind you. Take a look at the car in front of you. Observe things. It's essentially just knowing what is going on around you and not being caught suddenly in a situation that gets out of control very fast because you weren't, frankly, paying attention. So that's one thing. Another thing that I like to advise people to do, it's this. If you have a situation that you're concerned about and you don't know how it's going to come out, how about trying to figure out what all the possible scenarios might be? What would happen if such and such? What would happen if something else? All relating to your situation. I had a friend once who was a guard at a, at a place that he had to stand in front of for hours and hours. And he used to figure out what would happen if somebody came in with a gun? What would happen if somebody drove through the gates and broke everything down? What would happen if, uh, you get the point. And he didn't just think of these obvious ones. He thought of probably 150 different scenarios, all of which he had to figure out what he would do if that happened. Now, here's the point. Your nerves have memories and your neural memories will remember what your solutions were so that if you should actually find yourself in such a situation, then these neural memories will take over when your body is in a state of partial paralysis. So this is a very good exercise, whatever's going on around you. That's situational awareness and it could save your life. Now, this is not a course in 
uh, personal security, and I don't intend it to be. If uh, you have questions about personal security that you would like some guidance on, you can reach me through this uh, station. I've often asked you to write, to send me emails before. It's Ilana at AmericaOutloud.com. And I'd be happy to hear what you are concerned about. In any case, we're at the end of our show, and I am so glad that I had the opportunity to share it with you. And I look forward to seeing you again next week, same time, same station. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.